You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. They told me I couldn't talk until that thing was over with, so here we go. I just love Thad and Landy, don't you guys? Yeah. And we love Chris and Harmony, too. They're, they are, they, you know, we feel very blessed to see these guys come from our sister church and come down here to sing and and play and preach for us. What a what a special blessing. I invited all the seniors <clears throat> from Moscow to come and uh, <clears throat> and support me over here because I just felt real insecure. And uh, <clears throat> so I knew they would. Let's have all the seniors. If you're over 55, would you stand this morning <clears throat> where you are? Now, uh, right after church today, we're going to go to Sherry's, I believe, in Moscow and have lunch together. This is uh, one of the few times we get together in the summertime, but gosh, I just love old people, don't you? <laughs> I, it reminds me of this uh, kid who uh, was asking this old white-haired guy, he said, uh, he said, was you on the ark with Noah? <laughs> and he said, no, I wasn't on that blessed ark with Noah. And he said, well... How come you didn't drown? Uh, they get worse, folks. When I was a kid, we knew nothing about cholesterol. We had it, we would have put flour and salt and pepper on it and fried the sucker, and we'd have eaten it, I'm sure. You know, most old people like myself smell like Ben Gay. You can smell us coming for a long ways off, so, you know, it's uh, one of those things. We, we don't hear very good either. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you you guys can be replaced now. Don't. Uh, I one of my favorite preachers was Bob Moorhead, who was at Overlake uh, Christian Church over in in Seattle, and he tells about this little old lady. Bob was one of those preachers that always did expository preaching. Now, if you know well anything about preaching, expository preaching is where you take the scripture and you preach them verse by verse. And the people there loved that. So this little old lady came out there one day and shook Bob's hand, and she said, Brother Bob, I just love that suppository preaching that you give. <laughs> um, like I said, you know, we, uh, we can't hear very good, and we, we don't have very good memory. I, I heard about the couple that, uh, the, the older fellow who had fallen in love at the nursing home with this little old lady, and he came down the steps and he said to her, she was sitting at the bottom of the, sta- the, the, the stairs there looking mighty sweet. He said, now, honey, I know that I asked you to marry me last night, but for the life of me, I can't remember what you said. <laughs> and she said, well, I'm glad you said something because I knew somebody asked me, but I couldn't remember who it was. <laughs> One of the fellows that I heard about some time ago was trying to impress his preacher and uh, he wanted to take him to the nursing home where he visited quite often. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, he, uh, he, he walked in the nursing home. And here was this little old lady sitting in a wheelchair. So he got right down close to her and got his face right up in her face. And he said, do you know who I am? And she patted him on the hand and said, no, honey, but if you'll go up there to the desk, they'll figure out who you are real quick. <laughs> now... <clears throat> 
those are all things I can share because I, I am I are one of those people that uh, that we're talking about. Now I'm also while I've got all these uh, captive audience of all these old folks here, I want to tell you uh, something that <clears throat> that I've learned the hard way. One of the things that we that we have a hard time with we older folks we have a hard time uh, with our ears. You know, sharp music, loud music kind of bothers us a little bit. And uh, so I just want to remind you, I, I looked this up this last week, heard it from somebody else, but there's about five or six verses in Revelation where the angel in heaven shouts with a loud voice. And I, I just want to tell you, if you can't get used to loud noises, you ain't going to like it in heaven. Because it's going to be loud there. I, re I remember Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, when he moved to the temple area uh, and he saw God's presence high and lifted up. The voice of the angel caused the post to tremble. So we older folks better get used to the worship. I tell you what, I just enjoyed listening to Harmony and these guys sing up here. We are just blessed to have you guys to sing. Isn't that true? Now, my son has already let it be known that um, he said, my dad will have a 15-minute have a reduction, five-minute sermon, and then a 30-minute closing. And I want to I blow a bubble in all of that because <clears throat> we're going to spend lots of time in the Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It is the longest treatise, it's the longest uh, session, the longest sermon, if you will, that Jesus gives to his disciples. Now, in order to understand the Sermon on the Mount in these chapters, you have to understand what went on before. If you read chapter 4, Jesus was healing all kinds of people, and thousands of people came to see him. So many that they, uh, they were stepping on one another, and he was healing all kinds of diseases. And even though they didn't get along with each other, they wanted to see this man from Galilee performing miracles. Now, here we are with all of these people. And folks, I got to tell you, this violates every natural principle for preachers that I know. Preachers want to speak to crowds. They don't want to speak to just a few people. But Jesus with all these thousands of people, withdrew his disciples away. In fact, if you look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that we're going to see here in just a second, you're going to see that now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. What in the world is Jesus doing? Does he understand that if he reaches a whole bunch of people that a lot of them may very well turn to him and set the world on fire. What Jesus wanted was 12 faithful men that he could teach and train that was going to turn the world upside down. Now, after having said that, if you were to look at Luke chapter 16, verse 19, it says, and uh, all the people, it'll say that eventually. <laughs> and all the people, this is Luke chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Hello, am I on? <laughs> and 
And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and, uh, and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus withdrew from all of these people to teach his disciples. Now, I'm not, I don't have time to go through all those. You have those in your bulletin. You can look them up. But time and time again, when he had an opportunity to teach the crowds, he taught his disciples. He was preparing them for things to come. Now, I want us to look at John chapter 17, verses 4 through 6. Because here in, the, in what we call the Lord's Prayer, or the, the prayer that Jesus prayed, not the one in, in, uh, that you're going to go through in time to come in chapter 6 of Matthew, but here the one he prayed while he was by himself in uh, uh, John chapter 17, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Wonder what the world he's talking about. He hasn't died. He hasn't rose from the dead yet. Well, what is it, what has he finished that is so hugely important? And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. I have revealed your presence to 12 faithful men. God has always been looking for faithful people. Now, I love watching uh, Elliot Ness and, and the Untouchables, but you know, if you know the story of how he cleaned up Chicago and that kind of thing, he was looking for men who were faithful, who could not be touched by money and all the fame and various other things that, uh, that uh, they were given. But Jesus' uh, encouragement here is, Father, you have given me these men and I have finished what you gave me to do. Now, folks, I want to ask you a question. Two of them, as a matter of fact. One, why in the world would Jesus focus himself on 12 men when he's got all these hundreds and thousands of people coming to him that he can preach and, and speak to? Because he, he had a mission. Now, if you were to look through, and most of you have, I'm sure, you've read through Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, you know that Jesus wanted to prepare these guys for what was going to transpire, and it was not going to be easy. Are you serious? That's what he wanted to know. Remember a disciple came to Jesus once and said, I want to follow you wherever you go. And he says, the birds have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Are you sure you're in for this? If you were to read through even chapter 5 here in, in Matthew, he says that you are not to hate your brother. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my namesake. And remember, you, you remember, all the disciples that followed him were going to be killed in some fashion. Peter was hung wrong side up because he didn't feel like he was honored enough to, to, be, to be crucified the same way that Jesus did. All of them died in some fashion or another for what they believed, but he even says here in chapter 5, as you're going to court, settle matters before you ever get to court. Sacrifice, give what if you have to. He says, uh, uh, you, you've heard it said uh, that a man uh, shall not commit adultery, but I'm telling you, 
that if a man looks upon a woman to lust after, you've already committed adultery. Now what he's saying, folks, is don't get distracted. Don't let yourself get in so involved in, in the world's affairs that you're going to lose track of what you're supposed to do because remember, you guys are not going to have it easy. He said, don't swear. Let your word be what it says. And I, I got to tell you, years ago, I had a terrible time because I, I used to say when I was trying to convince somebody, I swear that's the truth. One fellow said to me one day, Charlie, does that mean everything else you've said isn't the truth? And I thought, well, you know, I never thought about it before, but I just wanted to make emphasis on the fact that what that is, that's really the truth. So, you know, I got to thinking, well, maybe what I should do is just speak the truth and let my words be truthful. Jesus says, love your enemies here in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll, you'll hear that from the guys who are going to be preaching about it. He taught them how to pray. It's interesting to me, folks, that in all the things that Jesus taught, the disciples came and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Now, I wonder why. Maybe it was because they saw Jesus boil in prayer or they saw him spend so much time alone with his heavenly father. Maybe it was because uh, they, they knew that when Jesus prayed, things changed. He taught them that they should forgive. Don't hold a grudge. I said to a friend of mine one time, he was talking about a friend of his, and he was really mad at him. And I said, John, you know, you're not supposed to be angry at somebody. And he, uh, he, I said, uh, you're supposed to, uh, uh, to uh, not hold on to a grudge. And he said, yeah, but I've had this work. I've been working on this for about six months. I said, really? Does that give you right to be, to be angry because you've been hanging on to it for such a long time? Don't judge each other. He goes on to say, get along with each other. When the, if you come to the altar to offer up a sacrifice and you realize that somebody has angry at you, you're not mad at them. You can't even worship. You can't even offer your offering until you go get it taken care of. See, Jesus didn't want these guys to get involved in things that were going to distract them. Isn't it amazing how we can come to church and leave inspired and excited and go home? And in three minutes, the whole thing is messed up. I read a book by a lady who said, uh, I think at the title it was, uh, let's kill them and tell God they're dead or something like that. I don't remember exactly what the title was. She was actually the wife of a pastor. And she <clears throat> shares that one Sunday morning he was preaching. Congregation was moved and people were coming to the altar to acknowledge their sins. They were, uh, they were, uh, <clears throat> really given their life to the Lord. And she said, we had invited a couple home after church to, uh, uh, to share with us and, uh, and, and lunch. And she said, my husband and I went into the bedroom to uh, change her clothes. And she said, we had our little dog in there with us. And um, <clears throat> he's, got, he's down to his boxer shorts. And this little dog went over there and nosed the door open. And, and there were the people were sitting out there looking at him in all his glory. And he turned to his wife and said, why do you always let that dog do that to me? And she said, all of that spiritualness that we just enjoy, all the glory we had given to God went down the tubes in a matter of one phrase. 
Why do you always let that dog do that? Her book is all about how words change their own heart. But the Lord is trying to encourage the disciples, don't let don't get caught up in all these things. Now, the second thing I want to talk to you about is how the disciples, what they did with the message that Jesus gave to them. Now, I know I'm going beyond the Sermon on the Mount, but folks, I want you to know that when they, when heaven came down and filled their soul and uh, the Holy Spirit gave them power and utterance and various other things, and they were able to see all kinds of miraculous things happen, these disciples began to preach in ways that nothing could destroy it. I was listening to Emmy and uh, Marty preach this last Thursday night. Emmy Salisbury is our, our uh, seniors kids pastor, youth pastor. And she was sharing about when the folks went to Turkey that they came to this place where Philip was actually tied to a, to a post or to a gate by his Achilles. Seven daughters stood off in a distance. They all encouraged him, Philip, Dad, don't denounce your faith. And not only was all of his seven daughters killed, but so was Philip. The message that Jesus gave to the disciples became the thing that began to change the world. And Jesus knew if he could just instill in 12 men who were who were bent on sharing the gospel, no matter if it cost them their life or their families or whatever, that the world would be changed. And folks, listen to me. I believe the church has come to the place where we're so apathetic anymore that we don't really know where the fire went years ago. I talked to someone who is a part of a mainline denomination. And we were in Libby, Montana. We uh, televised our church service. And, and uh, he said to me, you know, um, that our church, our church body, loses 1,000 members a week? And I said, you're kidding. I said, why? Well, we sing the same songs that they sung in the 1500s. People come and it's methodic for them. The message doesn't penetrate their heart. There isn't any excitement generated in their heart. And they go away just as bored as they were when they came, he said. This is what he said. And folks, here's the thing I know. That the church as you grew up in, many of you who are seniors here, that you grew up in, the fire is slowly flickering. And what Jesus tried to instill in his disciples needs to be rekindled again. The church is the only hope that the world has. And I know that sometimes I am, I am a burden to my son. I think sometimes he thinks I'm old-fashioned. I don't know where in the world he got that from. <laughs> because I ain't old-fashioned. I'm just convinced I believe that there are things that, that are so important that you, they should never change. There are some things, the message of the gospel should never change. It's as powerful and as po important as it was many years ago. I had a guy last week in my office who sat there with his head and, and his uh, hands and his, he was weeping. And he said, uh, I, I, need, I need something. I don't know what I need, but I need something. Well, you know, being a preacher, I could—I didn't want to tell him he needed penicillin because that wouldn't help him any at all, or uh, some kind of drug. I said, you need Jesus. 
Yeah, I know, but how do I get there? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I don't have time to tell you right now, but you know, you'll find it out in time to come. No, we went through the plan of salvation. That fellow was baptized that, that week. But folks, when the gospel was preached on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were baptized. I've never been to a baptism service that big, but I hope, I hope before I die that maybe I'll get, at least get to be in where there's a, there's a bunch. You know, we had at our house one time, we had over 100 people, 103 people, I think, in our house for a baptism service. Not all of them got baptized. They, they were baptized in the holy hot tub. In fact, we're thinking about getting rid of our hot tub. And I was talking with Aaron and Kelly about it last night, and I said, you guys probably wouldn't want that because there's all kinds of sin buried in that thing. It's, it's full of old dead people. So you probably wouldn't want the hot tub. But we, we baptized, I don't know, 20 or so people that night, and what a special service. But 3,000 was added. That's what Luke records in Luke chapter 2, verse 42. And then as you go to Acts chapter 6, and read verse 1. Let's see if we can get that on the screen. In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, one, some translations have the word multiplied. I think Luke didn't know how, he had no idea how many disciples there were. As they, they were multiplying, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against because their widows were being ignored in the offering. And if you look in chapter 6, verse 7, that would be the next one. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Uh, again, other translations have that multiplied. They were multiplying. Someone has said that when persecution arose in Jerusalem, that was the only way the church would ever disperse and get out of Jerusalem. They would have stayed there. They found Jesus and they were singing glorious songs and they loved raising their hands and praising God, but they didn't want to tell anybody else about the gospel. So you know what the Lord had to do? He brought persecution and scattered them all. And the scripture says everywhere they went, I still remember this little old bald-headed fellow. His name was Joe Ellis, who was in my, one of, he taught one of my classes when I was in Bible college. He wrote a book called The Church on Purpose. And he was comparing the New Testament church to what we have today. And he was sharing with us some of the things that are, that's not there. But the biggest thing that he shared is that we need fire in the belly. He said they had fire in their belly in, in Acts chapter uh, 6 when they scattered throughout Jerusalem and, and other areas. They, the message, he says, began to spread throughout the world like, dry, like fire and dry grass. Everywhere the disciples went, they talked to other people about the Lord Jesus. Now, you know, that brings me to where we are today. And I love meddling. You know, I'm a better meddler than I am a preacher. You haven't figured that out already. You're about to. A fellow by the name of Chris Sonkson wrote a book called Quit Church. I saw him interviewed on national TV recently, and some of you may have seen that. And they asked, they asked him, do you really want people to quit church? Now, he's a pastor out in California someplace and has several um, campuses and he said, no, I'm not trying to talk people into quitting church. I'm trying to talk them into quitting church as they know it. 20% of people in church give 80% of the finances. 20% of the people in church give, do 80% of the work. 19% of church members, they come 19 uh, times a year. 
39% of all the people who claim to be Christians in America attend church any, any at all during the year. That's what he says in his book. And he says, you know why? Because Sunday has become the most competitive thing for our families and our kids. Now listen to me, folks. I don't care what you think about what I'm saying. I'm going to retire next year. You can't fire me. You can talk to Aaron if you want to. And, uh, you know, I'm the dad. He's the son. He doesn't have a thing to do with what I'm, what I'm talking about. But here's the thing. We have, we have Little League. We have soccer. We have all these things on Sunday. When, when I was a kid and grew up, we had what we call the Blue Laws. Any of you guys remember the Blue Laws? Yeah. You couldn't, the stores couldn't open their doors on Sunday. They were all attending church. I remember when, uh, when my kids um, were smaller, mine and my wife's kids. I think she's here somewhere. I have to be careful what I say about her. But uh, um, uh, I almost stopped and told, told something about her, but she'll kick me if I do, so I'm going to move on. When our, when our kids were at home and they were, uh, they were uh, traveling, all of our kids played, Pam played volleyball and sang in the choir. She played basketball. The boys played football and basketball and sang in the choir. So they were gone just a lot, but... Uh, the, the, the school in Libby, Montana, where they grew up, really was concerned about making sure that the kids were home in time to go to church on Sunday morning. And when, a few times when, when they weren't, I remember taking Pam down to the church, and she and I would take communion together. Reminds me of Job, chapter 1, verse 5. Remember, Job's kids were partying. He had 10 kids. They were partying, and Job was afraid that they hadn't asked God for forgiveness. And so he would go out. Ten kids. He would go out and offer up a sacrifice for each one of them and ask God for forgiveness in case they had forgotten. Now, folks, that's the kind of commitment that the church needs. I want to serve with those kind of people. I have a friend of mine who was telling me years ago when he and his wife lived in a little apartment complex that one of the things they uh, that they they did as they, of course, went to church every Sunday. They attended church every Sunday. And, uh, and, and there was somebody, a family lived downstairs, and they, he, they came up, knocked on the door once, and they said, we see you guys going to church every Sunday, and we'd like to go to church with you. And so just to make a short story long, those, those <laughs> you know, preachers have a tendency to do that. When, uh, when, when, when the kid asks his dad, what's it mean when the pre preacher looks at his clock and taps it and his dad says, absolutely nothing, not a thing, doesn't mean anything. Uh, that family started going to church with him. They had a set of twins. Those twin girls grew up and began, were world travelers leading songs at revivals. They had led, they had seen hundreds and hundreds of people come to know the Lord Jesus. Now, folks, the, what Jesus gave the disciples was the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every, all people. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And you know that it's, a, it's an imperative verb. That means that as you're going, when you're at yard sales, last Sunday morning, last Saturday morning, not this past Saturday, but a week ago, we had a yard sale at our house. I got talking with this couple. Hey, you guys go to church? No, we don't. I said, well, you know, I'm from Real Life Ministries. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know about real life. We're thinking about coming. I said, I'm actually the, the marriage counselor there. 
She looked at her husband. She said, we need to go to real life. <laughs> I'm just telling you that as we are going. Now, I, I got to tell you this. This hasn't always been easy for me. And I, I know some of you are thinking here, gosh, I just, I don't know. I don't have the courage to tell somebody about, about the Lord. Well, it hasn't always been easy for me either. I, I remember when I first became a youth minister, I made the elders of the church promise that I would never have to preach. That's the truth. Well, they, you know, like elders do, they lied to me. <laughs> you know, elders will lie to you whenever they, whenever they want you to preach. <laughs> I'm only kidding. But uh, they really did. They, they made me preach. And uh, uniquely, um, I, uh, I uh, gosh, I lost my train of thought. You know, one of the things about getting old is that <laughs> you can't remember half of the stuff you said before. And what really comes after that doesn't really matter anyhow. So uh, it'll come to me. It's on the hard drive. It has to come back around. That's, that's what my wellness gal told me. Uh, at a, at a, oh, yes, I know what I was going to tell you. <laughs> See, I knew it would come around. I went, to the, I went to the hospital, and I prayed all the way to the hospital. Lord, send them home, because I won't know how to pray with them when I get there. Honest truth. But this lady saw me, and she said, you know, Charlie, you're a likable person, so my husband has cancer. He's dying of cancer. He had colon cancer. He's dying of cancer at the hospital. Would you go see him? And I said, sure. Now, folks, my heart was heavy all the way to the hospital. What am I going to say? I don't, I don't know what to say. So I went in, we stroke up a conversation, and we and I thought, well, sooner or later, he's going to say, well, you know, I know you're from the church, and I want to give my life to the Lord, and would you pray with me and, and take me through the sinner's prayer and help me uh, to give my life to the Lord? Well, folks, that didn't happen. I prayed with that man, but I never asked him where he was at with the Lord. And I got to tell you, I still think about him. Not long after that, I made a commitment, Lord, if you'll ever give me another chance, I'll never turn it down. Now, there have been times that I've, I'm sure I've, I've been ignorant and ignored things, but folks, here's the process. The method was Jesus taught faithful people to teach other faithful people who in turn teaches other faithful people. I like Acts 13.35. It says, David, after he had served the purposes of God, was laid to rest among all of his ancestors. God used David in his lifetime. When he was finished, he picked up somebody else. I was at home one time when my mom was, uh, before she passed away. And, you know, my mom thought that as a preacher that I was, I was the cat's meow. I mean, I had it all together. She took me to, in the drugstore to visit her druggist one day. And she said to me, now, she introduced me to him and told me what his name was. She said, now say some things to him and make him go to church. And I'm standing there thinking, well, God, what do, you, what, what do you want me to say? And I said to him, uh, I bet you go to church, don't you? He said, no. I said, well, you know, have you ever thought about it? <laughs> uh, he said, no, and that was the end of the conversation. But uh, 
Folks, I want to give you a little something here to help you remember what the process is. Now, most of us grew up with this. What would you rather have? A penny doubled every day for 30 days or a million dollars? And I can remember saying as a kid, I want a million dollars. How could you beat that? So I want to share something with you. If you were to take a penny and double it every day, the second day is two cents. The third day, it's four cents. The fourth day, eight cents. On the 28th day, you'd have $1,342,177.28. But two days later, you would have $5,368,709.12. Now, the reason I give you all of that is this is the process. You know the reason the church doesn't grow? We don't have people feeding it. Someone has suggested some time ago that that a great commitment to the Great Commission and the greatest commandment will grow a great church. God is depending on you and me just as sure as we're sitting here. And I wonder if my neighbor, if my neighbor doesn't know about Jesus, who am I going to blame? Somebody three blocks away or somebody that, who lives next door to him? Now, as the, as the group comes up this morning to uh, share in our, in our prayer time, I want to I share with you a story, and I want you to think about this. What would happen? Just, just ask me, tell me this. What would happen to Real Life Ministries here in Pullman if every person here Spent time in prayer, time in being diligent, time in making an effort to reach somebody. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's a friend. I can tell you this much, that if, you're, if your life is, is exemplifying who Jesus is, it won't take you long being around your family or your friends. They'll start asking questions. You don't have to bring it up necessarily. They'll start asking questions in time to come. God wants faithful people. I want to ask you a question. Will you be a faithful person? One of my favorite stories um, came when I was in Galesburg, Kansas once. A young fellow who grew up with me as I was youth minister was one of the, the most mature kids I've ever been around to be in high school. He actually had his own, had a church that he preached at every Sunday when he was a junior and a senior in high school. Went off to Bible college after he was in Bible college, he, uh, he got to start preaching at this little church out in Galesburg, Kansas. Called me up and he said, uh, Charlie, would you come and hold a revival for us? Well, you know, by this time now, I'm gaining my courage. And I said, well, sure, I'd be glad to come and do a revival for you. So we walked into the church. And in the front, there was this podium that was the, that was the most unusual thing I've ever seen. It was actually made out of little logs. And I asked Rick, my friend, I said, Rick, tell me about that, that podium. And he said, that, that podium was built by a man by the name of Knowles Shaw. 
Most of you probably don't know who Noel Shaw is. Noel Shaw wrote Bringing in the Sheaves. He was an early old restoration preacher that would, when he would go into a town, if there was a funeral before he held a revival, he would, uh, he would go and stand at the graveside, wait till the preacher was done. Then he would burst into song. When he would sing a song, when he was all finished, then he would invite everybody to come to the revival. He was heading for Alexandria, Kentucky, and I know exactly where he's at. There was a, a boat taking people across from the Ohio side over to Alexandria, Kentucky. And as he got on this boat going over to the church where he was going to have a revival the next week, there was an old captain there of, the, of this barge that was taking people across. He had a long shaggered beard. His hair was all disheveled. Tobacco juice in his beard and um, um, gosh, he, he was a mess. His back, he, you could tell his pants hadn't been changed in, in a long time. And his back pocket stood out where he'd have a pint or a half a pint in there. Shaw's thought, well, <laughs> I got 15 minutes to get across the other side. I'll just go invite that old boy to come to church. So sure enough, he invited this old captain to come to church. Where's he going to be? Right up there at that, in Alexandria at this little Christian church. Well, the first night, Brother Shaw preached a great sermon, a revival sermon as they go. And then the second night, he looked out in the audience and here sat this old man. True story. I was so impressed with, with Noel Shaw that I read his biography while I was at Rick's place that week. When, uh, when Shaw preached that night, he sat there with tears in his eyes. The following night he was there and he preached and this old man came down the aisle along with other people to give his life to the Lord. It was some time later that Noel Shaw relates that he was at uh, back at this uh, little church and the Christian church in, in Alexandria. And he said that when he walked into the church, a guy with two little kids, one kid on each side, came running up to him and said, Brother Shaw, do you remember me? Now he's, man's all clean shaven, has clean clothes. And also he said, I don't, I don't recognize who you are. I'm the fella who was the captain of that boat that you asked to come to church. Now, I don't tell you that story to make you feel guilty. I tell you that story to help you understand that there are opportunities that God is depending on us to capture. There's lots of times that we find ourselves in, in family meetings and other meetings when somebody's heart is longing for something different because their life is a mess. You have the answer. Years ago, in spite of the fear that I had of standing in front of people, I won't tell you the whole circumstance, but I can tell you this much, that I was so afraid to uh, have a young man's funeral that who had, uh, he said to me, I, I don't, Charlie, I don't know anybody else. And I went home and felt so bad about that that I couldn't sleep for a week. I made a promise, folks, to God that I would never turn down. A place to preach. And I got to tell you, <clears throat> that's
that's gotten me into a lot of trouble. This is how I know how God works. I believe his spirit is working in the hearts of a number of you. Some of you will walk out today and say, you know, it was interesting. Never thought about it like that. Tomorrow you'll go to work and everything will be the same. Some of you will be stirred in your heart. Those are the ones who God is going to use. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to raise your hand. Those of you who are willing to be stirred in your heart, I'm going to pray for you right now. God, your spirit is so, so powerful in our life. And Lord, I know there are hearts who are sitting here who are longing, longing to have this fire in their belly. God, I pray you'd, you'd use them. Right now, as these prayers are being uttered, like I remember myself, if there's ever a place you can use me. God, stir in the hearts of those that are here so that the world can see the church on fire. The world can see that there are persons who believe that Jesus died for them enough to, like the disciples, even be willing to sacrifice their life. God, we commit their hearts to you right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com. 